Well, as you can see, the title for the sermon on the front cover of your bulletin doesn't have anything to do with Christmas yet again. And I had uh, a woman come up who will remain nameless, and I, I told her I was going to share our conversation. And she, she came to me and she said, Tim, it's Christmas time. We don't need to be talking about these things. These things can wait till January. And I said, I understand, and we'll get to Christmas stories. And I said, well, what would you have us do next time? She says, well, the elders should know that we should start talking and preaching about Christmas when you start hearing Christmas songs on the radio. Well, I went and found out when Christmas songs start on the radio, so our Christmas series will begin the week after Halloween next year. So we will get to that and uh, and go for it. I want you to know that next week we will have a Christmas message. Of course, on Christmas Eve, we will not be dealing with the good, the bad, and the ugly, but we'll deal, deal with the manger. A quick uh, warning, as, as you know, if you've gotten an email, parents, if you feel that today's material by the title is not appropriate for your kids, uh, we're going to have everybody just get up again. I always laugh about this because we greet one another at the beginning of the service, and those ten people always get to know one another real well. But we don't get to know one another after we've been uh, here. So I'm going to allow people, if they need to take their kids up to the children's worship, they can. So just go ahead and stand. Say hello to the people next to you, and then we'll get into our word this morning. So stand and greet one another for a moment. All right. Now that I've brought chaos back to the sanctuary, I'm going to try to bring it back down. I heard uh, I heard one person say we should just do this the whole sermon long just now. So uh, I don't think so because I still need to get paid to do something. So we are in uh, the final part of our series. We'll be finishing this up before the end of the year. This first chapter of the book of Romans. And it is my prayer, it is my hope that out of this first chapter of Romans, we have understood, first of all, the greatness and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Second of all, that we would recognize that when we hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we as Christians would truly believe it to be good news. A lot of times as Christians, especially if we've been saved for a while, we forget how good the good news really is. Paul, for the first 17 verses of this passage, talks about the greatness of Christ. He talks about the goodness of the good news. And then he gives us the reason why. After explaining how great Christ is and how good the good news is, he says, this is why. The good news is good news because verse 18 tells us, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godlessness. The reason why it's good news is because Jesus Christ came to a world that was destined to hell. Why is the Christmas season so important? Because Jesus came to be God with us that He may save us from our sins. And Romans 1 articulates that we are all sinners and in need of that Savior. So it's a wonderful reminder In verse 18, the mood of this chapter changes from good to bad. God reveals His wrath. Why is God revealing His wrath? Paul tells us, first of all, that men have suppressed the truth. 
The second thing we learned was that men have substituted the truth. We see the phrase that says they exchanged the living and true God, the creator God, for created things. We substituted an immortal God for mortal things like fish and birds and other people. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen that men not only suppressed the truth, but substituted the truth, and also we have soiled the truth. And in this issue today, after talking last week about the issue of uh, sexual immorality when it comes to our own lives and the lives of people throughout our world, we come to yet another argument that Paul brings in this first chapter of Romans. There is no doubt if you live in this world, you have come to learn about homosexuality. Whether you are from junior high age or up, you have probably come uh, to grips with that term and understood what that term means. In our society, homosexuality is embraced by Hollywood and glamorized. Within the world of politics, it is trying to be legitimized. And it strikes fear in our hearts and our minds when we hear about child predators, molesters, and the like. This issue of homosexuality has become a storm of controversy on both the national level and on the local level as well. The validity and social acceptance of the homosexual behavior has become a hotly debated subject. And in fact, in the year 2008, will become even greater with a national election at hand. There are arguments that range from consideration of moral values to the issue of civil rights. What rights do these people have who practice such things? The problem is, is too often our responses reflect an emotionally charged extreme of conviction without compassion or compassion without conviction. I want us to strike a balance this morning in regard to those two things. We have a lot of people who have a lot of conviction out there on this subject, but who show no compassion. There are a lot of people who show a lot of compassion who have no moral conviction. As Christians, we are called to be like our Savior, who was full of truth, conviction, who was also full of grace, compassion. As Christians, you and I must consider the simplicity of such extremes, one or the other, to be inadequate and superficial. Homosexuality must be addressed with the conviction of Almighty God because He has spoken on this subject. Don't let anybody tell you that the Bible contains nothing in regards to this very troubling issue. It does. And yet we must also remember that just because the Bible says something doesn't mean we ram it down someone's throat but that there's compassion that goes along with it. And the compassion comes as we discuss these issues that we remember that these just aren't theological debates that are taking place, but they involve human beings who are made in the image of God. So we must speak on, uh, with sensitivity on one hand, recognizing the painful turmoil this issue has caused families in our community and in our nation and quite possibly even families within our own congregation. Don't think for one moment that there isn't families dealing with these types of issues, that there aren't people, uh, young people and adults alike, who aren't dealing with these things. Let us not be blinded by those thoughts of knowing that with a congregation this big, that there would be struggles with this type of sin. 
But on the other hand, we must also be deeply concerned and convinced of the impact that the rejection of biblical morality has had when it's been absent in our nation. We must have a resolve. We must have a passion to enter into these discussions, not just on a theological basis, but on a social political basis as well. Don't just talk about what the Bible says. That's important. That is the foundation. But it goes deeper than that. The Bible is is solid in what it says, that it is a sin. But we need to understand what that means. We need to frame our understanding of what that means in the civil realm and also in the national realm as well. But sadly, many of the previously held moral convictions of many, including great Christians, have been replaced by confusion, which results from both individual struggle and public debate. We have a lot of people, a lot of preachers who bang the pulpit and who call homosexuals out. In fact, one of the most prominent preachers in America banged his pulpit in a five-week series giving five reasons why homosexuality is a sin, only to find out four months later that he was uh, with a male prostitute. We need to be very careful. That we understand the allure of this sin. We need to understand that we must be careful, speaking with conviction, yet with compassion. The Bible says, lest we fall if we are filled with pride. This issue is an important issue. This issue is something that we must preach from our pulpits. Because the mixing of turmoil and confusion, along with attempts to imply that Scripture endorses homosexuality, compels us as a church, who, those who follow Christ, to understand where God is at on this issue. It should be our desire to know it. I'm here to tell you today, clearly, God has spoken and His Word is clear on homosexuality. Jesus said, and the Bible declares and condemns acts of hatred and sexual morality in general as sin. But let us not forget, because it's politically correct to forget these things, that the Bible makes it clear that homosexual activity, in fact, is a sin. And for that matter, a heinous one, a grievous one, one that we cannot take lightly. However, as Christians, we must be very careful, please hear me, that the jokes that we share, the words that we use, are words not only of conviction, but of compassion. It is not right. It is unfitting for any child of God to use slang terms, to use vulgar words to define the homosexual community or a homosexual individual, or to use hate speech against them. You think the sin of homosexuality is bad? Look at what it says in the Scriptures about words of vulgarity or words of name-calling. We know as a an evangelical church, that no sin is greater than another when it comes to the sight of God. For all have sinned, the Scripture says, and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you have fallen short with a little white lie or have fallen short with the sin of homosexuality, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We need to understand what God's Word says this morning. We need to understand some of the myths that surround this idea of homosexuality within our culture. So to do that, we're going to turn to God's Word this morning. We're going to learn what God's Word has to say because we need to know what God's good and pleasing will is. And in doing so, as I said, we're going to think, first of all, the myths, and then the message, 
and then the ministry is what we're going to see this morning. So I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. This is what the living and active Word of God says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, so that we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way also, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Father God, We humbly approach this text this morning. Father, there's a lot of thoughts going on in our heads right now in regards to this very incredibly touchy issue. And Father, I pray. I pray as You promise that Your Spirit will come and give us the truth. That Your Spirit will come and enlighten our hearts on how we must live that we will understand and know how to respond, that we will understand the balance between grace and truth, that we will be a light in a dark world, that, Father, our love will be seen and Your Word will be proclaimed, not just from our pulpits, but in our office places, in our schools, and in our homes. So, Lord, we bow before You this morning knowing that we are all people of sin. And as we deal with one particular sin this morning, Father, that if there is anyone out there who deals with this, who struggles with this, Father, that they will know the forgiveness and the freedom that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's true for all of us who struggle with all types of sins that we will deal with after the Christmas holiday where you articulate a litany of sins at the end of this incredible chapter. So, Father, I pray that you'll be with me, that my words will be true, and that my words will be your words, so that you'll receive glory and honor in all God's people said. Amen. You may be seated. How do we find a biblically and balanced, a biblical and balanced view on this issue of homosexuality? There are three things. First of all, this morning in your outlines... We as Christians must debunk, I love that word, debunk the popular myths surrounding homosexuality. 
There's some myths out there. There's some things that are shared, and we need to ask the question, just because it's talked about on CNN or even on Fox News, that doesn't mean that it's always true. Let's understand maybe the spin that is coming from our media outlets. The first myth is that homosexuality can bring forth a picture-perfect life. That homosexuality can bring forth a picture-perfect life. Our pop culture will tell us that homosexual lifestyle not only should be accepted, but many times it is advertised in many of the homosexual and gay community publications that it is the greatest life out there. I was reading this week online of one of GLAD's um, uh, preferred magazines. Of course, GLAD is the uh, Gay Lesbian Association for Anti-Defamation, I believe. And what they were talking about, and one of the articles that they were saying was, is that more people should be gay, because more people will then be happy. And the whole premise was, is that it's an incredible irony that the homosexual lifestyle is called the gay lifestyle, and that gay was a word that we used to talk about what? Happiness and fun. I remember watching the Flintstones, and they used to sing the song, we'll have a gay old time. Until I learned that maybe that's not the same word as the other word that we use for homosexuality. That's probably not what the Flintstones were wanting to be a part of. But as we know, as we look at the scriptures, we know that there is some truth to what they're saying. The gay lifestyle can be fun. The gay lifestyle can be a place of pleasure and a place of great um, enjoyment. But understand this, just like with every other sin... The pursuit of sin may be fun for a while, but it ends in destruction. Any sin. Moses, we're told of Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, that he could have had all the pleasures of the world being in Pharaoh's home, but he knew that they would only be an enjoyment for a short season. So there is some truth to it. But secular stats... Listen to me, secular stats, I've tried to stay away from groups like Focus on the Family and Christian groups like that, because I don't want anybody to hear to say, you know what, you're just preaching from people that you already know are going to say what you want to hear. Every one of my stats comes from a non-Christian publication or research group. This is what we are told, that those who practice homosexual lifestyle find themselves many times, the majority, to be miserable people. We find out this truth in a whole bunch of different statistics. First of all, the median age of death for a homosexual male is 38, less than or more than 30 years less than a heterosexual male. For a lesbian woman, it is 45. William Bennett, a uh, pundit, once said that homosexuality or behavior will take 30 years off of your life. Now, why do they have a shorter lifespan? It is no doubt to the following risks associated with this type of behavior. They face chronic, potentially fatal liver disease because of an infectious hepatitis. It increases the risk of liver cancer. AIDS also is an issue, which is in spite of all medical breakthroughs, in spite of all that we've learned, AIDS still, please hear me, kills every person who contracts it. It's a death sentence. Sadly, the case Those who practice uh, homosexuality run the risk of many different kinds of cancer and higher levels of death rates in those cancers. 
There's a higher rate of suicide. In fact, in male homosexuals, we see that it is six times as high the suicide rate as that of heterosexuals. Between 25 and 33 percent of uh, people involved in gay lifestyles are alcoholics, while the national average is less than seven percent. Infidelity soars. In one publication that was given by the gay community themselves, they were fearful of these words that they had shared that most gay men had had more than 300 partners in intimate activity. Now, lesbians were a little less than that, but they were still five times the rate of a woman in a heterosexual relationship. Infidelity soars when you fall into this type of behavior. Now, does that sound like a comfortable, picture-perfect lifestyle? Now, someone will say, well, Tim, not every heterosexual relationship is all picture-perfect. You're right. But this rate isn't anywhere close to what we're seeing with this. The second thing we see is the myth that there is the widespread prevalence of this lifestyle. What people will say is, is, hey... You need to okay this. You need to legitimize this kind of lifestyle in your laws. You need to allow us to have all the same rights and the same things that that you have as a married couple because there are so many of us out there. And how can you as Christians say that something is wrong if so many people are involved in it? Let's find out what statisticians say. Now, most people will quote a report that came out in the 1950s. The report was done by Albert Kinsey. He did the huge sex report that he gave. And in that report, he said that there was a minimum of 10% of all people in America were homosexuals. 10%. Now, that's a report that is still being continually used today. But a new study done by a human research group, I'm not going to try to pronounce the name, the Batelli Human Research Center, so someone knows I'm not making this up. They came out just a couple weeks ago and said that the actual number seems to be between 1.5% to 4% at best. So when we talk about political issues, when we talk about our civic duty, we need to understand that this is a very small group of people. But even if it was, let's say for a moment that we were the only people who who ordained, if you will, heterosexual relations. And everybody else out in the world said, no, Village Bible Church, you're wrong. We've got it right. The homosexual lifestyle is not only okay, but it should be embraced by all people. Let me tell you something. If we if, if we as a church stood on the word of God, as my parents say, I don't care what everybody else is doing. This is what you will do. The Bible makes it very clear. My parents used to always tell me, I don't care if a million people jump off a cliff. Does that make it right? It doesn't. God's word is true. And if God's word says that this is a sin, we need to believe it to be a sin. No matter if a million people come and say that we're wrong. That's why we hold up high the Word of God. That's why we say in our doctrinal statement that the Bible is going to be our uh, final authority in all matters. Why? Because there's a lot of people who are selling a lot of things out there and saying that you, you can do this or you can do that. But we must go to the Word of God. Let's say 99% of the world was gay. 
the scripture of Romans 12:2 would remain strong. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We're getting to a place where this lifestyle will be accepted. And the Bible tells us, be careful not to conform yourself. Philippians 2.15 tells us why. So that we may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. So what would we be able to do then? Where Paul says that we would shine like stars in the, in the universe. Understand this, that just because the world, just because our politicians, just because our TV says a lifestyle is right and that everybody's doing it, if you will, that we should believe it and embrace it. The Bible is our final authority. Don't let us ever forget that. The next issue that we see, the next myth is the issue of personal identity. You address someone who is in a homosexual relationship, especially one who has a reverence for God in in certain ways and areas, and they are going to articulate to you these words. But God made me this way. But God made me this way. This is probably the biggest falsehood that we see, the biggest myth proclaimed by homosexual advocates. And what they're saying is, this is how I've been made. How can you talk about Scripture? How can you talk about what God says if, in fact, the feelings that I have were created by God Himself? He created it within me. This is my DNA. How can I be condemned for my natural desires? In 1993, in the publication Science Magazine, a study appeared. And that study was a groundbreaking study that suggested could not prove, but suggested there was a link between genetics and homosexuality. But since that event, almost 14 years ago, there have been 10 studies that have shown that that Science Magazine study was flawed. And what they're saying is, is, while that is a hypothesis, that we can say that there may be a gay gene within homosexuals, we cannot prove it. And we are years away, they say, from being able to prove it. But let's say for a moment that there is. Let's say for a moment that there is a gay gene. Does that change our stance? It does not. Don't be afraid that if someone comes up, a scientist comes up and says, I have proven that a homosexual, in fact, can be born that way. That doesn't change anything. We understand that we carry a lot of curses from the fall. We have people who struggle with uh, diseases at birth, conditions at birth. And they come as a a result of uh, what has taken place at the fall. So what would say that the very framework of who we are wouldn't deal with the psychoanalytical part of who we are as well? But here's the problem. Even if, and I don't believe that that is the case personally, but let's say even if that was the case, and science came to the church and said, you guys are wrong, there is a gay gene, we need to understand something. And that is... That just because we have a tendency to something doesn't mean that we pursue it. We have, we have tendencies to tempers. We have tendencies to uh, gossip. We have tendencies as people for whatever reason, it, whether it's just how we've been made or the uh, framework of how our life was involved at an early age, whatever it may be, whatever the cause is, we have those tendencies to certain things. 
I have a tendency, and I'm, I'm not trying to be a joke about it, I will never be 150 pounds because I have a tendency to be a big man. My dad's a big guy, as you saw a couple weeks ago, and I'm walking right in step with him. Now, here's the thing. I can look at my life and say, well, because my dad struggles with his weight, then I'm always going to struggle with my weight. So what I might as well do is go to every buffet that I can, knowing that i got a thyroid issue that never been diagnosed, and go and eat all I want and consume the things that, that I have a desire for. I love eating food. It's my job. It's good. But you know what I have to be careful with? I need to know what my tendency is and that if I continue to pursue that lifestyle, that it's going to cause me a whole lot of pain and suffering in the end. Things like diabetes, things like certain kinds of cancer, things like heart disease, people will tell me that if I continue to go the rate of just saying, well, this is going to be the way it is, I'll be 600 pounds. And as a result of that, my heart will start to stop working properly and I'll run into trouble. How does that work within the Christian realm? We have tendencies to all kinds of sin. Look at the tendency that you have to the temptation that you deal with the most. Did that just come up? Did you choose? Did you say, I'm going to deal this deal with last week. I'm, going to, I'm just going to deal with pornography. I like that, that sin. I'm just going to deal with that one. That's the one I've chosen. I, I didn't like the gossip one. I'm going to deal with that one. If you're like me, you know that the very temptation that you struggle with is the one that you, I almost fell over there, is the one, whoo, okay, is the one that you wish you didn't have. How many wish they had a different kind of temptation? I wish I had a lying tongue. That's a little more popular than some of the issues I deal with. I don't know about you, but the ones that we struggle with are the ones I wish I had their problem. But you know what? No matter what our tendency is, whatever our inclination to sin is, you know what the Bible says? Flee sin. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Whatever sin that you struggle with, whatever tendency you have, orientation that you struggle with, it doesn't give you a blank check to say, but that's how God made me. First of all, God did not make us that way. God created us in the image and likeness of who he was and who he is. And because of our parents' decision and our continued decision to pursue sin, the wrath of God is there for the wage of sin is death. The moment that we come out of our, in fact, the moment that we are created, there are all kinds of issues of the fall that we struggle with. That's why when we look at a baby who has all kinds of issues, we don't sit there and say, well, the baby sinned. But we know that that is the consequence of sin within humanity. And we understand that that's a problem that came as a result of the fall. So if a gay gene is found, it doesn't change our biblical mandate to call sin a sin. And what it is to do is say, if you do have that orientation, if you do have that issue, just because you've got an orientation to heterosexual behavior doesn't mean you can go sleeping around with anybody who you want. The Bible says you can't do that. We've all got that orientation. We all have that drive. It's within, it's innate and with who we are. But God says it must be put into this box called the parameters of the Word of God. The next thing that we see this morning is we see the final myth, and that is, let me turn the page here, permeance, permanence of this condition. I'm using bigger words than I can use myself. And the phrase is, is that I'm gay and I can never change. Tim, you can talk to me that I, I, I need to change. You can tell me that I'm living a life of sin, but I can't change. If this is how God made me, 
then how can I change that? Tim, you can't change that you have certain characteristics within your body. There's nothing you can do. You can try to hide them, but you can't change them. Let me make something perfectly clear. As we uh, look to the gay community, we know that there are those who have walked away from the gay lifestyle and pursued a life more fitting for human beings. Again, very non-conservative, sex researchers, masters, and Johnson, never known for their conservative position on anything, reported in their book, Homosexuality in Perspective, listen to this, that in a study of 81 gay men who desired to be reorientated to a heterosexual relationship, they had a 71.6% success rate. This isn't the Bible. This isn't focused on the family. This is a, a secular work group that said if you desired to change, there was a 71.6% chance that you could. Let me tell you something. If you're dealing with this issue today, understand this. By the power of Almighty God, not by willpower, by the strength of the Holy Spirit, you can find freedom from this sin. Many Christian groups like Exodus International are out there and they are committed to help people who desire to change. And Exodus International says that they have somewhere in the neighborhood of a 78% success rate with those who join their program who find themselves being freed from the issue of the homosexual lifestyle. It isn't something that is permanent. But what does the Bible say? So I've told you about secular groups. The Bible speaks for a moment. Turn a book over to 1 Corinthians. I will get to our text this morning. Don't you be worried. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're in Romans, go a book over to your right to the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's, it's ironic, if you will, and nothing's ironic with God, but if it's ironic that the place where Paul was writing the book of Romans was in modern day Greece in the city of Corinth. That's where he was at. And he's writing to the church in Corinth in this first letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 9 through 11. This is what he says. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. I'm going to stop there. We'll get to the other things in a couple weeks. Look at what he says in verse 11. He just names more of them. He says, well, nor any of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And listen to what he says in verse 11. And that is what some of you, what does that next word say? Were. What is Paul saying? Paul saying, Church of Corinth, you've had a success rate. That even though we have the tendency to be sexually immoral, to be idolaters, to be adulterers, to go to the temple and be male prostitutes, and even to be sexual offenders, he says there were some of you in the Corinthian church who lived that way. But listen to what he says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. There is no condition, there is no sinful condition that cannot be freed by the power of Almighty God. Such of you, such of these were you, but you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. We need to understand that by the power of God, change can happen. 
Whatever addiction it may be, sexual or otherwise, it is not just something that we can want to happen. I have to deal with my weight on a continual basis. If you went into my um, closet, you would find the uh, skinny Tim clothes, and you would find the more jolly Tim clothes. All right? And I've got everything in between. Why? Because it is a constant battle. And it's not because, please hear me, that I want to just uh, just be fit and trim and be a Brad Pitt lookalike. I'll never be that. I'm better looking than he is. But the thing we need to understand is, is that that is a tendency that I know can bring me harm in the future. And at 30 years of age, 31 years of age, I need to be careful how I live the next 20 years. And I want to be careful the best I can. Now, there are days that I don't do very well with that. And there are other days I do real well. But what we need to do is be continually fighting that fight. Whatever your sin is, whatever your struggle is, deal with it in a way that pleases God. Secondly, this morning, we must discover the biblical message that establishes God's perspective. We have to get a moral high ground in this debate. We can't just debate using our own little thoughts and our own little ways of explaining this debate. But we must go to God's Word. And the first chapter of Romans reminds us of God's, first of all, repeated position of wrath towards humanity. Look at what it says in Romans 1.26. He says, because of this, because of what? Their sexual immorality. It says in verse 25 that they exchanged the glory of the Creator God for created things. And because of this, God gives an answer. He says He gave them over to shameful lust. This word again is gave them over. This phrase is the word parodidomai. In the Greek, we talked about this last week. Remember in verse uh, 24, He says that He gave them over to shameful lust. He says it again. It's a repeated position of where God stands. This word parodidomai was a courtroom term if you weren't here last week. And it literally was that if I was the judge and the, and the criminal was standing before me, I would use this word parodidomai to say, take him away to go serve his sentence. Meaning, you're going to jail. And this is how long you're going to be. Now, bailiff, take him and put him in jail. That is what this word means. So what God literally is doing, remember, this whole passage of Scripture, in fact, from Romans 1, 18, all the way to Romans 3, I believe it's 23, we see that Paul is using a courtroom analogy. And what he's saying is, is man is guilty before an almighty God. And what God is saying is, is all right, your uh, problem is sin. And because of your sin, you are going to deal with all kinds of issues And because you want to continue to pursue that sin, I'll let you do it. So go. I'm not going to destroy you like I did back in the flood, like I did in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to let you go. You go your merry way, but understand two things. Number one, you're going to find trouble. And number two, I'm not going to be there to protect you. And that's what God does. He says He gave them over. What did He give them over to? Look at what it says next. Man's repulsive passions for one another. Verse 26, it says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. I want to stop there for a moment. In your outlines, I want to give you three characteristics about these shameful lusts. First of all, we see that we need to, before I even get there for a moment, we need to understand what is being talked about. Look at what it says in verse uh, 26. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, 
the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. They committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty. Liberal theologians will say the following. What they will say is, is that's fine. You're right. Homosexuality is wrong. But why is it wrong? It is wrong when a heterosexual male or female exchanges what is natural, their straightness, if you will, in our vernacular today, and they exchange it and say, you know what? I don't want to be straight today. I'm going to go hang out and do this gay thing over here. And what they're saying is, is Paul's saying, don't do that. If you're gay, be gay. If you're straight, be straight. Don't start intermingling with one another. Which is funny because I read from one of the guys that said this, and it said that he is a bisexual. How do you work that out? Because then you're going back and forth. How, how does that work out? But that is what they say. Now what they'll say is, is what is being meant here also, another argument by liberal theologians, is that the word relations there in our NIV really doesn't mean sex. Well, I want to help you out with that. The Greek word for relations is krisis. In Paul's day, krisis was most commonly used for sexual intercourse. And in the context, it referred to nothing more than intimate sexual relations. And more specifically, it meant the perverted use of one's body in that uh, in intimacy. So what, what is being said here? This is all having to do with homosexuality. And we see three characteristics. Number one, first of all, it's immoral. It is immoral. Paul speaks of same-sex activity as a shameful lust. Just on the side there, three characteristics of these shameful lusts. He says the word shameful. In the Greek, it is the word atamia, which means literally to be without honor. Now, there's a disgusting element to the definition of this word in the Greek, and that's why the King James Bible uses the word vile. These are vile lusts. One scholar said that instead of pursuing God and the goodness found in his person, we go after disgusting depravity and filth. The next word that we see is the word inflamed. In the same way, in verse 27, in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with the women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Before I get to what that Greek word is there for inflamed, understand this. Why does Paul start with the women? Why does he say, even their women? Understand this. Women, you probably understood this already, but men, you need to know this. Women are usually the last bastion, if you will, of morality. Men, we find ourselves getting into all kinds of trouble and all kinds of issues. But what Paul wants to explain is even the women, the more softer sex, the one that doesn't seem to be involved in the violent crimes. If you look at our Department of Corrections, you will see more than 80 times the amount of men in violent crimes than women. Why? Because Paul's articulating it. There's something about a woman that keeps them from running into the habits, not all of them, but into the sinful habits that men do. That's why we talk about the evil that men do. So what is Paul saying? He's saying this immorality even has gone as far as to impact the women. So women, don't think you've just been, you know, you're, you're great and only your husband has these issues, even the women. But look at what it says, the word inflamed. 
Ekakayo is the word inflamed in the Greek. It literally means to burn up, to flame up. It was used figuratively uh, in the New Testament to talk about to be burned up with passion, to burn furiously with lust. What it's saying is, is that the lusts for one another were inflamed. It was like taking a um, bottle of gasoline on an already started fire and dousing it until it erupts with fire. This is this word, akakayo. It is burning up with fire. And it spreads. What an incredible word picture that gives. This fire that is within us, it destroys. It spreads rapidly. And it destroys, and, and, and in fact, destroys everything in its way. The final thing we see is it's indecent. Men committed indecent acts with one another. The Greek word for indecent there is, oh boy, this is a long one, askamusuna. Askamusuna, Despi's going to laugh at my pronunciations of some of the Greek here this morning. It means to act in defiance of some social and moral standards. A commentary once wrote that uh, what was being said here in the Victorian time was a woman, and I don't want to give any kind of weird pictures, but a young woman who would not keep her legs together when she wore a dress. It is indecent. What are we told to do? We are told to keep certain things private. And what the text is telling us is, is this is indecent. It brings forth a resulting disgrace, embarrassment, and shame. It also implies that it is grossly unseemly and offensive to manners and morals of humanity. These men are in defiance of social and moral standards by committing acts that are unseemly is what Paul is talking about. Now understand this. Paul uses terminology that signifies gross immorality. He says the following, that the men were attracted to men and that women were attracted women. But understand this, in the Greek, that is not what is said. Look at your uh, NIV translation. Some of you may have a King James there. It may have a different translation there. And literally, most scholars agree that what Paul was trying to say was not men being with men, women being with women, but literally males with males, females with females. And you say, why, why would that be so big of a deal? Because there's a more dignified term. We don't go around and we don't say, hey, look at that male over there. Hey, look at that female over there. We talk about that in what kind of kingdom? The animal kingdom. We say that's a male species of the lion. That's a female species of a lion. But because we are greater than the animal kingdom, what do we call ourselves? Men and women even though we are a part of that species of the human race. What Paul is trying to signify, I believe, by using these two words, is to say because we have fallen to these things, we have not uh, um, evolved, but in fact we've degraded ourselves. We have fallen to become animalistic in our behavior. What does an animal do? An animal will do whatever it takes to receive what it wants. And it will go great lengths to see that happen. And that's what Paul is saying about humanity. How sad it is that though we are made in the image of God, we find ourselves like the prodigal son wallowing around in the mud to get what animals have, even though we can have so much greater. Next thing we see is a relentless pursuit of sexual sin. This is seen in the word committed. 
This word committed in the Greek is used 22 times in the New Testament and gives a picture of unyielding pursuit of things till we get what we're looking for. You are committed to buy that certain Christmas gift this year. You'll go on the Internet. You will go uh, and look on uh, sales racks. You will make sure you go to every store and scour the store to get what you're looking for. And that's what humanity does. We pursue the issue of homosexuality and we pursue it and say, that's what I'm looking for. I don't want to do it the way God wanted it done. I'm going to go after it my own way. But here's the problem. Within this word committed, there is an idea here that even though we hunger for it and we get it, that there is only a constant hunger for more. Think about that for a moment. Christmas Day. You open that great gift that you've been scouring for to give to your uh, loved one or your friend. And they open it up and they say, this is great. But you know what? I'm looking for something a little more. And what we're learning as we look at the homosexual lifestyle, we see that it is characterized by that contentment not being a key element in that. There are very few monogamous. We use that argument all the time. They use that argument all the time. Well, but we're monogamous. That just isn't seen even by their own records. It is not seen because monogamy is not something. And Paul says it's because they have committed these acts. In fact, literally it is committing these acts with a hunger for more. They'll never get enough. C.S. Lewis called this the paradox of hedonism. That you will want something and desire something, but yet when you get it, you'll only want something more or greater. The final thing that we see is the received penalty for sinful living. The received penalty for sinful living. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. I want to make something abundantly clear. We do not know what the received penalty for their perversion is. We don't know. Is it AIDS? I don't know. The Bible never says that AIDS is the gay uh, curse to people that pursue those things. And we know that it's not just a gay disease, but it's also a disease that hits straight people as well. So we don't know if that's the curse that he's talking about. Is it sexually transmitted diseases? We don't know. We see a higher rate in the homosexual movement, but it's also seen with people who are engaged in heterosexual relations. Is it the state of being ostracized? Well, that's changing. So that due penalty is changing. That it's a big deal now to come out. Jodie Foster, this last week, after years of being speculated that she's gay, came out and endorsed her life partner, Sydney, And it became the big thing that she now has come out. And the reason why she has is because it's pretty, it's pretty chic in Hollywood to be gay. So not even the state of being ostracized can maybe not be the curse as well. We don't know what the curse is, but understand this. When God says that there's a penalty coming, understand that God never lies and that God is pure and true in all that He says. And if He says there's a penalty coming, it's there. And it says it's a due penalty. This idea of due penalty means because of their perversion. There is no doubt that God says He hates homosexuality. There is no doubt that there was a literal place called Sodom that burned with this sin and many other sins as well. And God says, I'm going to destroy this city. If God said that and that came to fruition, will we not believe that if God says there's a due penalty, that it's coming and that in fact it is upon us? 
Look about it this way. Do we see the wrath of God being revealed around us? Yes. Why? Because God said it would be happening, and it is. God is truthful. When it says it's going to happen, He says it will. Now, why is God so angry? Why is God so angry about this sin? I want you to understand literally what this sin does to God. God has created us. The Bible says in Genesis that God created us male and female. And what does he say? He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. Our bodies were made, male and female, man and woman, to come together and to procreate. And that's how our bodies were set up. Our anatomy proves that God had a purpose in what our sexual orientation should be. And yet what happens is, is if we pursue this type of lifestyle, it would be literally me going to one of you ladies taking your wedding dress, something that was set up and created for a place of glory and honor for special use, and taking that and finding out that my cocker spaniel made a mess in the living room, instead of getting a paper towel, going and getting your wedding dress, something that is set apart and using it for not only a common purpose, but a disgusting purpose. And that's why Paul is angry, and that's why God is angry. Because he says what we have created, or what has been created, us, we've taken what for special purposes is now being used for garbage. And Paul says, when you do that, a due penalty will be received. One final point this morning, and that is, is that once we've looked at the myths, once we've looked at the message, there's one final thing, and that was, is we must develop a heart that longs to minister to those who struggle with sin. As a church, I want to make it abundantly clear that we have our eyes wide open to the world that we minister in. That we understand that there is a world out there that's full of sin. All types of sin. And if we're doing a good job, and if we're out there reaching out to people, that there will be people who will enter these doors who struggle with these types of issues. I know that, and in fact, and I've met people who have walked in here a couple years ago. A man walked in who was an openly gay man. He told me that. He walked in. I said, great to have you. God bless you. He says, I'm gay. Great to meet you. God bless you. As if I'm going to change my response. And he said, you're taking some things too literally in the Scriptures. We need to be careful. We don't tell people. I didn't even talk about gay things that day. But we had talked about sin. Turning from sin. He says it's more complicated than just your Bible-centric view of things. Now, why did that guy come? He came because one of our gentlemen in our church invited him, praise God. That there was a person in our church who was willing to engage in a conversation with that guy and had the guts to say, you know what, I know you're living a life that you're going to come to my church and it's going to be told that you can't live that way, but I want you to come anyway and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to be people who have our eyes wide open. What does that mean? Two very quick things. Number one, it involves conviction. Don't forget this. We must, please hear me, clearly and without apology, preach and teach the Word of God, never letting public opinion or political correctness change who we are. We must continue to say, Thus saith the Lord. This means understanding the topics at our hand, understanding what the Bible says about those things. But also we must be ones of conviction when it comes to our own sin. Maybe today you're sitting there saying, Tim, there may be one or two people that have this real issue in our church. Maybe one or two. But you know what? If we want to be people of conviction when it comes to the issue of homosexuality, we should be people of conviction to that litany of sins that are right below that passage that we'll look at in a couple weeks. 
of being God-haters, insolent, and the like. The second thing we must do is we must be people of compassion. There's a church in Kansas, I will add, a Baptist church in Kansas, whose whole mission in its church life is to attack homosexuals. You've heard about this church. I'm not going to name it. I don't want to get the church in trouble. But this church goes around and it goes to soldiers' funerals, people that have given up their lives for defense of the country. And they go and they pick it because they believe that the war in Iraq is a curse from God because of homosexuality. So they go around and they have signs that say God hates fags and uh, gays will burn in hell. And they walk around and they do that. Now I'm going to tell you something that might shock you. Their conviction is right. Homosexuality is a sin. They've got that right. What they've got wrong, which changes their conviction, is the compassion that goes with it. And if we think that all we've got to do is bang our Bibles on our hands and tell people because of their sin they're going to hell, we're wrong. And the words of conviction we have are sinful words, even if they are right. Because compassion must be a part of it as well. You know how you get compassion for someone uh, for this type of sin? You get to know someone who struggles with it. You get to know a family member that struggles with it. People say, well, how does this fit within Christmas? One final uh, stat that I saw, most homosexuals who are dealing with an inward homosexual uh, desire come out at the Christmas dinner table. Just so you know. So this does apply to Christmas for those who were wondering. Okay? How do you prepare yourself? God forbid that one of our children, God forbid our spouse, God forbid someone that we know comes up and shares, I've got this problem, I'm living a gay life and I just want to come out and tell you, what do you deal with? How do you deal with that? Very quickly, you deal with the Word of God prayerfully and you say, this is what the Bible says. This sin is no different than any other sin when it comes to separating us from God. But this is a proof that we are in a deplorable state as humanity. And the second thing is, you love them. You love them and you love them. You love that gay child like you love that lying child on the other side. You love that gay child just like you love that one that is out carousing with uh, the people of the opposite sex. You love them. Why? Because God loves them. Don't let us ever forget the grace and love that God has shown in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, our Savior was accused of eating and dining with publicans and sinners. Therefore, let us do all that we can to love all sinners, even the ones that we uh, see living in heinous lives. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, again, I pray that my words have been clear. Father, I pray that my words have been true. Father, I pray that my words have been relevant. That there are those there that are in this place who, for whatever reason find themselves either dealing with this personally, dealing with it from a family standpoint, dealing it from a co-worker standpoint, or, Father, the, um, the chance that we may have of dealing with it in the future. That, Father, we would remember these passages, that we would remember that your words are true, but you also call us to be people of compassion. So, Lord, let us strike a balance between conviction and compassion this morning, that we will have the love of Christ, but that we will also share the words of Christ. To you be the glory and honor and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.